listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Everyone else, please open up in your Bible with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5 is where we're going to be. We're in a series right now. We've been working through this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica, and we're winding it down. But if you are new with us, uh, or if you missed last week, I have really good news for you. I missed last week as well. So... Before we dive in, I want to give us a little recap of where we are at. I want to really thank Pastor Lee. I think he's with the kids. He just stepped out with the kids, but he did a great job picking up where we left off last week, and it was so great to hear that message. It wasn't quite as good as being here, seeing your faces, seeing with you all in the same room, worshiping with you, but it was still great to, to just hear him preach the word, and I heard a lot of great things about your response as well. But where we're at right here in 1 Thessalonians 5 is very important. It's very important to understand the context of what we're about to get into. So Paul loves this church. They've been through a lot together, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering in a very short time. And in chapter 4, Paul had a lot to say about the end times, and that kind of bled into chapter 5, the end of the world as we know it. And then he shifted from talking about the end of the world to giving his final charge, his final charge. And he has a lot to say about his closing words. And this is where Lee picked it up. He, he started off the closing challenge by talking about two groups of people within the church. We are to honor those who serve. And then secondly, we are to help those who are struggling. It was, it was really as simple as that. As a church, we have the greatest cause on earth. We know Jesus Christ. We have been saved by his blood. We have, been, we have faith in what he can do. We've seen it in our own lives, and we want to share that with the world around us. So that's our cause. That's what we're here for. We're here to share the good news of the glory of God, salvation, the, the good news that Jesus saves, that he loves you, that there is another way. We have that, but your message can be harmed, distorted, Twisted if your culture of your church isn't right. So that's where Paul, that's where Paul was going at this first angle with the Thessalonians. He was talking about how we can have a healthy culture within the church. We have this great cause, we have this amazing mission. Let's make sure our culture is healthy. And that starts by honoring those who serve you and lifting up those who are struggling. We love our leaders and we love everyone else. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. That's how you start a healthy culture. And be at peace among yourselves. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Verse 15, right where we left off. So now that Paul has addressed the broader culture of the church, which we saw, we just saw last week, and I just caught you up on that. If you didn't hear the whole message, go back and listen to it. This whole series has been amazing. I've learned a lot from this series. But now, picking it up in verse 16, the attention is now turning internally to our own hearts. Because your actions are always stemming from your heart. Always. Culture cultivates function, right? Like, yeah, the way your culture of your church uh, thrives and, and, and is alive, like that will affect your, your tone, your attitude, your actions. Absolutely, your culture has a huge effect on that. But your culture always stems from your own heart. So today, I'm going to tell you right now, this is an up-close, personal look at your heart. That's where we're going with this. And there's a question that you're going to have to answer. What do you really want with your life? What do you really want with your life? And I will tell you, short answer of what everyone wants, 
Everyone wants to be happy and to enjoy their, and to do, and to enjoy their life, right? That goes without saying. But that's not really what I'm asking you. What do you really want? It really comes down to this. Do you want it your way or do you want it God's way? Do you want to do what you want to do or are you seeking God's will? I've heard it put this way before. There's just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. As we get into this, you're going to see that your heart's desires can change and be aligned with God's will. That should be the goal of every Christian. But most people want to live their life the way they desire to live their life. Whatever their interests are, whatever, their, whatever strikes them and interests them and, and, and does it for them. And if they can work God into that, well then great. But the closer you walk with God and the more you abide in Christ, your heart's desires become his heart's desires for you. And there is a biblical term for this. It's called God's will. God's will is what we're going to see today, following God's will. So this morning, we're looking at three verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. And these verses are going to teach every single one of us this morning God's will for your life. It's that simple. Now, there's only two passages in the entire New Testament that directly state this phrase, God's will for your life. As a matter of fact, we've already seen the first phrase in this series. It was early on in 1 Thessalonians where Paul said, it is God's will for your life and your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. We preached a whole sermon on that called The Best Sex. And, and there was so much to that, that God's amazing gift of what it entails and how it's so much more than what the world says it is. If you embrace what we're about to read, though, we're about to read the second time that Paul goes into a little more detail about God's will for your life. If you embrace this, you will live out God's will for your life. Now, I'm going to let this other big question, what do you want? What do you really want? What does your heart really want? We're going to come back to that. We're going to park that right there and come back to that later on. But as you're going to see, this is a very straightforward passage of God's word. It's not a complicated outline at all. And Paul gives us three action verbs on what we're meant to do. But before I even give you the three action verbs, I know you can see them yourself there if you look, but before I even go into that, I want to point out and give you a heads up on what's around these three verbs. The particular modifiers are always, without ceasing, in all circumstances. Does this sound pretty important? These just aren't optional additions to sprinkle into your life as you go along your merry way when it works. It's not like I'm ordering a burger and I'm like, oh yeah, I'll have the grilled onions and the mustard and the ketchup, please. Like, oh, those are the three and I'll cast off the rest. And like, no thanks, no, no on the pickles today. I'm not, not feeling it. <laughs> it's not like that. It's always without ceasing in all circumstances. In effect, God is revealing to us that as a Christian, there's a way that he wants you to be from your heart. Because you can't really fake this. It has to come from the heart. And if you live this way, if this is flowing out of your heart, you will be accomplishing the will of God. Your life won't just be about you. It will be about someone greater, the name that we just sang about this morning. And your cause won't just be about your cause, what you're feeling in the moment. It will be eternal, it will be timeless, and it will be priceless. That's what we all were made for. So follow along with me as I read our text today, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I told you this was a simple passage. 
But there's your outline for today, right there. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. You can say it this way. God's will for you is to be a joyful, humble, grateful person. It's not that complicated. That's what he wants for you. That's how you accomplish his will, which will show his glory. We often boil this down, the same list, to loving people. This is how you love people. This is how you become a person who shows the character and the nature and the glory of God. You become a grateful, humble, thankful person. And that's great. I, I'm glad to know it's that simple, right? But is it really that simple? <laughs> Doesn't life kind of throw a monkey wrench in that sometimes? I don't know about you, but it's not necessarily easy for me to always, without ceasing, in every circumstance, be joyful, thankful, happy. <laughs> Yay, great. Oh, it's, everything is wonderful. It, it, it can be tough, right? So when people think of God's community, when they think about Christians, when they think about the church, this is what they should see. And thankfully, I, I truly believe in this church, I can look out here, I can see a lot of people who do exude this. I was talking with Trevor and, and Paul earlier this morning, and he pointed out one of the little girls here, and, he, and, and they were just like, oh, she's always smiling, she's always so happy, it just brings joy. Like, it's so exciting to see that. We see that in the kids that roam around in this church. We see that amongst us. I mean, I could just start naming names, right? Like, Jamie. Amanda, Darian, like so many people, Kinsley, like you have joy, you are happy. There's something different about you. And I mean, I could list off name after name after name in this room. It's so great to see that. But to be a joyful, humble, grateful person, it is much harder than it sounds. We all want to be around those people. Those people are fun to be with. We enjoy listening to them. But life isn't always full of joyful, happy, great things. So it's not always easy to be that way. Am I right? Are you with me on that? It's not always easy. It's actually more easy to be annoyed, to be prideful, and to be entitled. I'm not saying we all are, but let's be honest. We have a natural fallen tendency to resort back to that mentality, even after we know Christ. And that's, that's humanity. It really is. I, I once heard a late-night comedian on a talk show, and he was complaining about modern society. And what he said was, everything is way more amazing than it's ever been on the face of the earth, yet no one is happy. Right? Think about that. We used to have rotary dial phones, and you have to put quarters into the slot. You had to carry change around to make a phone call somewhere. Right? Now you can just pick up your phone at any time. And, and make a call. And you can just jump on the internet, the world wide web, and if it doesn't connect in like 0.2 seconds, like, what's wrong? Come on. Like, what, what is this? Like, give it time. It's got to go to space and back, all right? <laughs> like, that's the society we're in. We'll complain about the seat on the chair and the way this comedian talked about it. It's like, think about it. You're in a plane, you're in a chair in the sky. Does it really matter if it doesn't recline all the way like you want it to? Like we will find things to complain about in life. We can all be cynical. We can all, all find ways to get annoyed. And for me, I'll just tell you one of them. It's the light uh, when I'm turning left to take my boys to school. That last, that last left-hand turn, I think it's like a five-minute light. And if, we, and if we don't get there at 9.44, if we get there at 9.45, we're waiting for like five minutes before that light turns green again to turn left. And I, I have to admit, I've complained about it before. And then I hear my boys complaining about it. And I'm like, ooh, wow. Hey, guys, let's, let's take it easy. <laughs> let's not complain about this. We're going to make it to school on time. It's going to be all right. But it's so easy to get bogged down in life with the nasty, nitty-gritty things 
that just suck the gratefulness, the humbleness, and the thankfulness right out of us. So easy. Uh, you may find this interesting, and I don't want to, I could talk a lot about this. I don't want to talk too much about this, but there have been recently a few different secular studies that have come out, and, and they have proven, even without the Bible, that this is the way to live. I mean, this is absolutely the way to live. The Wall Street Journal highlighted this not terribly long ago. They have this growing body of data that proves living with a positive attitude, being joyful and grateful is actually great for your health. And having a grateful attitude improves your emotional, psychological, and physical well-being. They studied adults. And the more grateful you are as a person, the more optimism you have, the more friends you have, the less dependent on alcohol you are, and the more money you make, the more you sleep, and the better job you have, on average. They studied kids, kids who were grateful and thankful. They had better grades. They had higher goals and achievements. They had fewer headaches and more friends. The same article studied college students. They did this study of, of undergrads. Don't you love those, those studies where they just like study 100 undergrad students? Well, they took group one, and every week for 10 weeks, these students had to come up with five things that you were grateful for. They had to write it down once a week, write down five things you're grateful for. Group number two had to write down five things that annoyed them Write that down for 10 consecutive weeks. And then group three had to write down five things that happened. And you can all tell me right now, right? Who was the successful, more happy, more vibrant, the, person, the, the group that enjoyed life better, got better grades, better health, everything? Of course, it was the group that wrote down five things they were grateful for every single week. The students that were forced to list their blessings had way less complaints, they exercised more regularly, and they generally felt much better about their life. It's almost as if God made us that way, <laughs> right? He knows what he's talking about here. So medically, it's to our advantage to be grateful and thankful people. You could even go into survivalists, right? I mean, I don't know how many of you study the crazy survivalist people out there, they're out there, but they will tell you the key to survival is having a positive mental attitude. You could be stranded in a life raft, right, or in a jungle. People that have less resources will survive longer if they simply have the positive outlook. You want to win a war? What's the key? Is it have the most guns, have the biggest artillery? Well, that helps, but you know what the secret ingredient is? It's morale. It's having the right attitude. Be a joyful, grateful person. Science confirms it. Crazy survivalist people acknowledge it. Even generals in war affirm this. The way for a human being to thrive in the world is to be a grateful person. God does know what he's doing. He created you for a purpose, for a reason. And he says right here, my will for you is that you rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. Now, we're going to dig deeper into these three. But before we do that, I want to say one more very important thing here. I want to point out to you how much our world is diametrically opposed to this. If you just open your eyes and look around at our culture, at our society, it is the complete antithesis of gratefulness, humbleness, and thankfulness. I was listening to Thomas Sowell talk about the difference between equity and equality this week. And if you've never heard of Thomas Sowell, he's a brilliant philosopher and economist. But in this talk, it was called Equity, the Thief of Human Potential. He was contrasting traditional justice with cosmic justice. He was differentiating between the two. Cosmic justice, also known as social justice. As he was describing the difference between making sure everyone is abiding by the same rules and standards, making things equal, the difference with equity is 
It tries to force equality by equalizing the prospects of everybody. So instead of equal opportunity, it's equal outcome. These two concepts are completely incompatible with each other. And if you pursue both, you're going to have to bring in much more authority and structure to manufacture a mirage of equality because it's impossible to equalize the outcome without making things unfair. Because with equity, what you have to do is pull someone else down to lift someone else up, which in and of itself is unfair, has devastating results, and it never works. What it does do is make people bitter, angry, and ungrateful. And it sets people up for failure. So Thomas Sowell went into the whole renormalizing of test scores. And if you don't know who Thomas Sowell is, I mean, he was born in 1930 in Harlem, New York. Okay? So he was going through school. When, when he was in his time, at his time, no one even advanced past seventh grade. But here he is in Harlem. He has teachers who knew he came from an underprivileged home, right? He looked all around like, yeah, you don't have as much as these other people on the other side of the tracks. But did his teachers tell him, we have to like equalize the outcome here? We have like, you're a victim. These people are bad. You have this disadvantage. It's not fair for you. So we're going to just normalize the test scores, give you a little advantage, give you a leg up so you can compete with the other people. Thank goodness in the late 30s, early 40s, when he had his seventh grade education, they weren't doing that. They made him work just as hard as everyone else. And guess what happened? He overcame. He's brilliant. He's, he's a mastermind. He's smarter than anyone in this room, probably. But he said, and I quote, what if teachers of that era had been imbued with the present day concept of fairness? Me and my classmates who worked hard and overcame would be on welfare, perhaps in a halfway house if we were lucky. Would that not have been injustice to take individuals capable of independent, self-supporting and self-directing with pride in their own achievements, ability, and turn them into clients, dependents, supplicants, and mascots? That's the way he looks at it. That's what our world will do to you with a victim mentality. Our culture lives off victimhood. And you can even see it bleeding over into everything. I mean, you, if you still watch those talent shows, like I don't really watch them myself. I really never have. But what I, from what I have been told, this is what I've been told, it's not really even based on who has the best voice anymore. Who has the biggest sob story? Who can we really get behind? Who has, the, the, who has been mistreated the most and in, in, in like, that we can just have this tearjerker story? Let's cheer for that person. I hope they win, right? It all feeds into the victim mentality that our culture has. And the mindset is a cancer. It's completely antithetical to everything we see here and that we're going to see. There's a lot more I could say about this. I could go on, but I'm saying all of that to point out to you that our culture lives off negativity. We're swimming in it and we're surrounded by it. And if we're not looking to Christ, we're going to be affected by it. Grumbling and complaining is the currency that our society peddles. So it takes a lot to reverse that and to turn that on its head. And if you do live grateful, humble, and joyful, you will stand out. Now, we all want to be that type of person. No one wants to be a negative Nancy that just sucks the life out of the room when they walk into it. So next question is, how do I do this? How do I become this way? How can I possibly, David, pull this off? Glad you asked. Let's go back to the text now that we've set all that up. Point one, rejoice always. In the original Greek, always is a combination of two words. Every when. When I'm tired, when I'm awake and I'm sad, always. Every when. Great to know, but how? Does anybody ever remember that song? If you, if you grow up in the church like, like I did, you may remember this song. 
Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice. It basically went on and on and on until somebody just snapped mentally. Like, that was the song. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, I don't think it had an end. It was the never-ending song. And it was supposed to make us happy. <laughs> Didn't always work. Maybe it did for some people. Doesn't work for everyone. What are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to just sing that song when times are hard? Is that what we're supposed to do? Whew. Now, what some people will say here is, hey, look, joy is not connected to your emotions. It's, it's an action verb. It's something you do. So you can choose joy even when your heart is crushed. Now, is it though? Is it though? Like, is joy just completely detached from your emotions? I mean, that, that sounds nice in a box. It sounds nice and tidy, but I don't really know if that's, if that's accurate fully. I think there's a kernel of truth to that for sure. We can choose joy, but you have to do something there to get there. If Jesus said, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, I believe that Jesus is looking for us to really experience joy in our hearts. And for us to honestly, from the inside out, rejoice in every when. So how do you do that without coming off weird or fake? Here's what you need to remember. It's something that we saw earlier in this letter. Joy is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Just turn a page or two back with me. Remember this? Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction... With joy of the Holy Spirit. Joy is a gift from the Holy Spirit. You're not going to have what we're talking about unless you know Jesus. You know what he did for you on the cross. You've accepted it and you've received it. And you're looking at life totally differently now. I've been saved. I've been redeemed. I've been purchased out of the sin of slavery. The slavery of my sin. And he has given me new life. Joy comes with that. Joy comes with that entire outlook on life. When you receive the word by the joy of the Holy Spirit, even during harsh circumstances, this is a miracle. And this is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So joy comes from the Spirit of God. Now, how do we get joy that transcends all circumstances? There's truly only one way to receive the gift. So I ask him for it. Is that what you're saying, David? I just ask him for this gift? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. But even then, it's still not that simple. What happens if I ask for it and then I still get punched in the gut? <laughs> Anyone ever been there? Well, joy isn't dependent on circumstances. True. But that doesn't fully describe it either. A better way to think of it is Joy transcends circumstances. Think of it that way. This means that I'm not disconnected from my, from my mind, from my emotions. It's just, a, it's just that this gift is so good, it overwhelms everything else. It transcends what I'm going through right now. There was a man named Admiral James Stockdale. He was the most senior prisoner of war in Vietnam in the entire United States military. And he, he was very heroic and valiant. He was rescued. 
after the Vietnam War was over, when he was free, he had an interview, and they asked him, who dies first in extreme circumstances? This answer may surprise you based off of everything we just have covered. But you know what James Stockdale said? The people who die first in the prisoner of war camp are the optimists. It's the people who are like, oh, we're going to make it to Thanksgiving. We're, we're going to be out of here by Thanksgiving, and we'll be free. And Thanksgiving comes. They're still not free, and they break. Because they put their hope in a brighter tomorrow. They put their hope in, yes, we will get what we prayed for. That's going to come true. Uh, there will be sunshine in the end. The sun will, the sun will come out tomorrow. Well, I'm sorry, Annie. Sometimes that doesn't happen, right? Sometimes it gets worse the next day. So you have to put your hope and your faith in something that's greater, that transcends circumstances of just, it will get, well, it'll pass. It'll get better. You have to put it in something greater, someone greater. There has to be something more substantial than wishful thinking. And there is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That's greater than my circumstances that I'm facing right now, right there. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. Look at that. Look at, look at, verse, look at verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. God is coming to set up a kingdom. Paul has already talked about this. This world is broken, but God is alive and Jesus is coming. He hasn't just left us to go to hell. We have a rescuer. His name is Jesus. He redeems us, and he's coming back again for us. Amen. So here you go. You rejoice when your world is bigger than what's in front of you right now. You give thanks when you don't just live for the here and now, but you live for eternity. This is a joy that surpasses all of the things that I can touch, feel, and control. Because God is in control, even the th over the things that I can't control. That's what brings joy in all circumstances. Rejoice because the Lord is near. Sometimes there are no friends around. Sometimes there is just nothing that you can see in your perspective that's good about the situation. But God is always good. God is always moving. And joy transcends circumstances because it is fueled by the gospel and is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The way you tap into that is to simply meditate on the gospel of what Jesus did for you. Who has he made me? What has he done for me? And, and here are his promises of what he will continue to do in and through me. That gives you joy. So what are you right now in your life going through? What's not fair in your life right now? There's probably something in here for all, almost everyone in this room. There's probably something that is not fair. And you have a lot of things going for you. Maybe you've overcome a lot of those things. But there's still, there's still stuff there that's just in this fallen world. It's not just. It's not right. Welcome to humanity. Welcome to a fallen earth. I want you to think deeply about what's going on. And then I want you to actually just pause and say, in the invisible realm where God is moving, God is directing, God is harnessing that, something that someone meant for evil, God is using it for his good. And you can just meditate on the gospel. I hope you have a time every day, whether it's morning, evening, whether it's in the middle of the day, maybe multiple times a day. That would be even better. 
But I hope you have a time where you can just sit down, you can open up God's word, you can talk to him in prayer, and you can receive the message of love that he has for you in his word and meditate on that. We get far too busy to where we just don't sometimes sit down in awe and wonder of what he has done for us. We have to do that. Open up the Bible, let him speak to you. We don't often feel that enough, the wonder of God. But this is exactly what makes verse 17 make perfect sense. Point number two, pray without ceasing. Now, half the time I heard this verse growing up, it was a joke, (laughs) to be honest. And it was one of the worst kind of jokes. It's like one of those Jesus juke kind of jokes where, you know, you're, you're with a group of Christians. One guy has his, like, plate of chicken tenders, and he's so hungry, he decides he's just going to dive right in. He didn't bless the food, right? Have you ever been there before? Or where it's like, this guy's not praying, like, hey, whoa, hey, let's, let's thank God for the food. Oh, man, I, I pray without ceasing. I pray without ceasing. I don't need to pray. I, I'm always praying. Like, those, those kind of jokes is what, sadly, sometimes people take this verse, and this is, this is as far as we go with it. Pray without ceasing? You always have to pray? This is a very important verse, and it's not a joke. And it's really not that hard to grasp. You really have two options with this verse. Either it means you are constantly on your knees praying all day, every day, and you never do anything else, which is impractical. It would not fit with the rest of Scripture, so it can't mean that. Or what else does it mean? It could really only mean one other thing. It means you go about your life, you go about your day in a continual conversation with God. You're praying without ceasing. You never just stop and end it. Like, no, you have this ongoing conversation where you are praying to God. You are listening to him. You're talking with him throughout the day, day in, day out. That's praying without ceasing. Prayer isn't something you only do three times a day. To keep your mind on things above, to look beyond what's in our face, to the wonder-working God, and to live in faith, and to believe that he works in the invisible, to rejoice always, you have to keep the conversation open with God and pray without ceasing. People who pray understand two things. To really do this, you really have to own these two things your own dependence, and God's presence. You have to believe, I need to depend on God, and I crave God's presence. Talking about really, I mean, going back to that original question, what do you really desire? What do you want with your life? Are you dependent on God, and do you crave his presence? Start right there. So that means you're going to pray during small decisions, You're going to pray and not lose heart. Jesus talked about this mental attitude of dependency and prayer. If you you listen to the parable that he shared in Matthew 17, he talks about a widow who in that day was the most powerless, bottom of society, had no recourse, had no ability to really provide on her own. And she was treated unjustly. She kept going back to the judge over and over and over again. And then the story that Jesus tells, this is an unjust judge, a corrupt, wicked judge. The judge doesn't care about giving justice. So he keeps dismissing this woman again and again and again. But the old woman kept going back to the judge over and over again. Does anybody remember this story? What happens? Eventually, The wicked judge sets it right. Sure, you can have it. Like, yeah, he does it simply because he's tired of hearing from her. Just to get her off his neck. And then Jesus says, how much more will your loving father answer those who call out to him? And then right here, Jesus diagnosed the problem. But when the son of man returns, will he find faith on earth? The reason we don't pray that much, if that's you, 
is because we don't really think about God working in our midst. We lack faith. If you have faith in the wonder-working God, you will be dependent on him and you will crave his presence. You will pray without ceasing. If it's all, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and do it my way, I'm going to work for God, I'm going to accomplish big things, you're not praying without ceasing. You're eventually going to crash and get very, potentially even get very bitter because it didn't work out the way you were promised it would work out. So we don't just pray frequently, we pray all the time. You can do that as you live your life and interact with people. You can do that as you serve others, as you do your very best in the workplace. You can do that as you study. You can have an ongoing conversation with God. And when you do that, you will have a sense of your own weakness and you will be in awe of his glory and what he's done for you. And what's going to happen? You're going to be happy. The stress in life isn't going to feel as stressful. There's going to be joy there that's pretty hard to explain for most people who don't know Jesus Christ. Rejoice because he is working. Pray because I need him to work. And then have faith that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. I believe that. Do you believe that? I hope you do. If you believe that, you will ask for bold things. You will live your life following God's plan. And your, con- your expectations will consistently be exceeded. And you're going to live with a grateful, humble heart, which is exactly what we see in our last point, number three. Give thanks in all circumstances. I'm so glad he didn't say give thanks for all circumstances. Some circumstances, absolutely not. Thanks for this car wreck, right? Like, those aren't good days. It actually says be thankful in all circumstances. How? We've been talking about it. The person that believes that God rules. The person who knows that God loves me. He cares for me. He has a plan. He actually can harness this bad thing and turn it for my good. If you believe that God is sovereign, that he is in control, even pain is for your good. And I've gone to a lot of passages today. I mean, we have a very short text to work with, so I wanted to show you how this does fit in to all of Scripture. But in Romans 8, where it tells us that the the Spirit intercedes and helps us even when we don't have the words. Remember that passage in Romans 8? He helps us pray. Actually, go ahead and just turn there. Romans 8, start in verse 26. Let's let's just read this amazing passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you know Jesus Christ, you are already glorified. It's a promise. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The good there in this verse, he works all things together for good. It's not the American dream, okay? It's not a nice job, a a beautiful house with a white picket fence and two and a half kids and a dog. Like, 
and vacations three times a year. That's not the good that this verse is talking about. What is it? It's to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing in your life. He's working all these things together for good so that you can become more like our Savior. And you can live with joy and peace and gratitude and humbleness, dependence on God. You're actually accomplishing his will and showing the truth and the glory of God with your life. That's something to live for. That transcends circumstances. Is that what you really want in your heart? The will of God? Or if up to this point you lived your life with a different will and a different desire? So often we are like those little kids in the Chronicles of Narnia books. And if you've ever read that series, The Silver Chair is probably one of the saddest books in the series, but I think it's one of the most profound. And that Silver Chair book begins with them on the top of this mountain with Aslan, who's the figure for God, the Father. And it's beautiful up at the top of this mountain. The air is crisp and, and clean and fresh. And they're, and they're speaking with God, Aslan, in the, in the book. And he says, I'm sending you out on a mission. You're going to go down into the valleys. Down there, the air is misty, the air is thicker, and it's going to be easy to forget. Isn't that the way life is when we face hardship in the valleys? It's the way it works. It's not always clear. Things get sticky. Things get mucky. It's easy to forget who he is, which is all the more reason why we have to get in the word and we have to never cease our conversation with God. If you forget that God reigns on high, you're not going to have joy. You're not going to be thankful. But if you pray, if you depend on him, and you thank him for every single circumstance that comes your way, as hard as that may sound, and it isn't easy, it's going to be pretty hard to say negative things and to be all angry and, and to be that grumpy person. There are times, yes, where it will be a struggle to feel positive. But look again at verse 18, back in 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Are you in Christ Jesus today? Have you confessed your sin and said, you know what? I've lived my life my way for me, and look where it's gotten me. Are you at the end of your road and you've fi finally realized that that's not going to cut it? And you say, look, there is a God in heaven. There is a creator of all. He sent his son to be a savior for me. He's the Messiah. He took my sin, paid the price on the cross that I deserved, and he offers me the free gift of eternal life and a relationship with my creator and my sustainer. If you haven't done that, do it now. The invitation is always open. He's knocking on the door right now. You just open the door and he will come in. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. He, he died for you and he will save you. If you know him, if you've done that, don't focus on that terrible situation that you don't have any control over what transcends that the God who loves you the God who chose you the God who saved you this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you worship team you can come up here we have to get rid of the mindset that we are working to impress God we're living our life to achieve great things for God it's not how it works we abide in Christ. We walk with him. We talk with him. 
We are frail and we are weak. But in God's mercy, he sent Jesus to defeat sin and to rescue the sinner. If you are in Christ Jesus, everything that happens to you is for your good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Stand up with me, church. I want you to think about what is God's will for my life? And am I pursuing that? Or have I been pursuing something else? I've, I've had God in there. Jesus has been a part of it. But something else has been primary. And because something else has been placed over my relationship with Jesus, I can't honestly say that I rejoice always, that I pray without ceasing, and that I give thanks in all circumstances. When you live your life on mission for the glory of God, this is the byproduct. Your heart will be characterized by this. Not only is this the byproduct, this is actually showing you where you're at. It's a revealer of your heart. People who know Jesus and who are in love with what he's done for them, they can't help it. They, they still rejoice. They, they talk to God. They, they give thanks. This is what he has called us to. This is what he wants for us. This is his will for you. Thanks for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions about the topic of this sermon, or if you would like someone to follow up with you about applying this to your life, please reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.